and welcome to Understanding Your Fertility. This is a podcast series featuring Aykut Bayrak, MD. Dr. Bayrak is a highly regarded fertility specialist and the founder and medical director of LAIVF Clinic. I'm your host, Elif Sersel, and I'm very excited to participate in these conversations designed to inform future parents. In our last episode, we helped listeners understand the symptoms and the diagnosis of endometriosis, which is a condition that affects up to 10% of women around the world. Our podcast today is How Does Endometriosis Affect Your Fertility? And we're going to break down the connection between this condition and infertility and examine how it can impact your chances of becoming pregnant. We receive a lot of questions on this subject, and we hope to address them all on our podcast. So hello again, Dr. Bayrak. Hello, Elif. Let us recap and give our listeners a brief overview of the condition, if you would. Yes. So in our introductory part session about endometriosis, we talked about what endometriosis means and how it forms and what are different stages. Why don't we recap that? So endometriosis is a common gynecological condition that affects one out of 10 women in the world and one out of anywhere between four to six women uh, who have infertility. And it's typically more common in women with infertility and symptoms of endometriosis and in couples or individuals who otherwise have no identifiable cause of infertility. Sometimes that is also called unexplained infertility. We call it undiagnosed cause of infertility. Endometriosis is an inflammatory disease. It's typically defined as the presence of endometrial cells, which typically cover the inner lining of the uterine cavity. And if these endometrial cells are outside of the uterus, anywhere in the body, most commonly in the pelvic area, fallopian tubes, or the ovaries, that disease is called endometriosis because they're not supposed to be anywhere outside of the uterus. So people may ask, well, how does it get there? How do you get endometriosis? Well, most people believe that when the menstrual flow, which typically happens vaginally, and majority of the menstrual flow comes out vaginally, which is basically a mixture of blood and endometrial cells. Oftentimes, it actually goes back through the fallopian tubes and spills into our pelvic abdominal cavity. And this actually happens to be a normal phenomenon. So most women have not only vaginal bleeding, but also they have bleeding a little bit backwards into their pelvis. But it's only those women who later develop endometriosis have some level of immunological dysfunction that results in the persistence of these cells or these cells just stilly, uh, literally sticking onto the membrane called the peritoneum and just simply causing disease. So these cells that spill backwards are supposed to be cleared by the immune system normally, naturally, by the end of the period. But if they're not, and if they stay there and they act as if they're inside the uterus, then we have the disease called endometriosis. So that's typically the definition. And even though we don't know the exact cause, we believe that maybe heavy bleeding backwards or 
in uh, combination with an immunological issue, this disease forms and um, causes a wide variety of uh, issues. Uh, when a patient comes to you with infertility issues, can you help us understand how you go about diagnosing whether they have endometriosis? That's a very common and a good question. So people often come in and say, well, do I have endometriosis? And um, the diagnosis of endometriosis, which we uh, touched base in the first session, is a difficult one clinically. Uh, because uh, if somebody does not have any painful periods or painful intercourse or painful ovulation or just in general pelvic pain, or unless somebody has ultrasound evidence or high suspicion that they have endometriosis in their ovaries, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to diagnose endometriosis clinically. cannot be diagnosed with a pelvic bimanual exam. There's no CAT scan or MRI will diagnose it. There's no blood test that will really give us that definitive answer. So uh, the final and the most accurate diagnosis is typically done during surgery. When we see these lesions and we remove them and we biopsy them, take them out, send it to the pathology department, and ask the pathologist to see if they see endometriosis or endometriotic cells outside of a tissue that we removed that is outside of the, uh, of the uterus. So if we remove a tissue or biopsy some kind of a lesion that is not inside the uterus, obviously, but it has endometrial cells, then we get that pathological and final diagnosis. So that's really the only way to give a final 100% diagnosis of endometriosis. Short of that, it's more of an assumed diagnosis, um, meaning if somebody comes in with painful periods and painful intercourse and they have infertility, we tell those patients, well, you have these symptoms and it is likely that you have endometriosis, but unfortunately, we may be wrong in assigning that diagnosis because in the past, and there are historical studies about this, by the way, uh, people who had severe symptoms of endometriosis, when they have surgery, sometimes there's absolutely no endometriosis. So, which then leads to us to think and understand that um, not all pelvic pain, obviously, is caused by endometriosis. There are a variety of other different causes and, and issues. So one issue with the diagnosis is that there's no good marker finding, once again, short of doing surgery or short of seeing more advanced endometriosis in the ovaries, which would then make it very highly suspicious, especially to the trained eye uh, when we look at these um, ultrasound findings, because Endometriosis-related cysts have a specific appearance on ultrasound, which is quite different than any other cysts. So when we see an endometriosis cyst or something that looks suspicious for endometriosis on ultrasound, we always follow up to make sure that it's persistent. Because if it disappears, clearly it is not endometriosis. But if it's persistent and it looks, once again, specific to that type of a cyst, then we give the patient an assumed diagnosis, a much stronger assumption <laughs> rather than just having symptoms and no ultrasound findings clearly. But certainly, if we see a patient with a large cyst, persistent, not going away, and it looks suspicious, then we say, well, you not only have endometriosis most likely, but you also have advanced endometriosis, which obviously complicate things uh, for their overall health, for their treatment, and certainly 
it has a dramatic impact on their uh, fertility. Actually, that brings me to our next question, which is really what we're trying to grapple with. How does endometriosis impact fertility, the actual sort of different stages of the reproductive function, if you like, and what exactly inflammation means in this context? Well, inflammation means, first of all, a reaction by the immune system, by our body, to any kind of an insult in a way, or any kind of a variable that is different to our body, which can be as simple as just simply hitting our hand or feet or any kind of trauma uh, that can cause swelling, pain, redness, and attraction of all types of immune cells, uh, namely highly differentiated white cells. So inflammation can be due to a burn, that can be sunburn or other type of burn or an infection, for example, like a viral infection or a throat infection. That's all inflammation. Inflammation can also exist in different ways and due to different uh, reasons, such as endometriosis. And it is an inflammation of our body by its own cells. And uh, once again, endometriosis is the presence of endometrial cells in anywhere outside of the uterus where they belong. So in a way, there's a struggle between those cells trying to invade into an area where they're not supposed to be and the immune system and the body trying to fight that off. And that causes a reaction that can cause release of certain substances, mediators, toxic end products. And all of that can cause and attract white cells, differentiated white cells, trying to kind of manage that chaos in a way. And all of that is a different type of inflammation. It's not viral or bacterial or chemical or due to freezing or burning or other types of traumatic issues and kind of breakdown of the tissue itself, but rather due to an immunological reaction, an overreaction perhaps on one end, an underreaction on the other. But that loss of that balance in the immune response certainly creates this inflammation and hence endometriosis. And then the common question is, well, okay, all of that is fine, but what if my fallopian tubes are open? How come endometriosis affects my fertility? Because at the end of the day, my tubes are open, I'm ovulating, my husband has sperm, so how come endometriosis affects our fertility? Well, there are different mechanisms in which endometriosis actually can result in infertility. One of the most commonly known and established ones is a change in the normal anatomy. So inflammation can cause tissue damage. Tissue damage can cause scarring. It's almost as if sometimes we cut our hand or there's a little bit of scar tissue and sometimes it really disappears, right? But sometimes you see that little white line that never disappears. And some people, they just heal in two days and others, they'll develop a keloid, right? So, so everybody heals a little differently and every single trauma is not the same. Obviously, also depends on medical conditions, personal characteristics, genetics, probably. So there are many other and different variables. But at the end of the day, if there's any kind of tissue breakdown or damage, that actually in itself can cause inflammation or inflammation can cause tissue damage further. And that can cause scar tissue. Scar tissue means that when tissue is healing, wherever that is, it releases some sticky proteins. And that 
tissue can get stuck to another adjacent tissue, such as the intestines, fallopian tubes, and other adjacent structures. So if there is a lot of inflammation in the pelvis, fallopian tubes actually can be affected. And obviously, we know that we need the fallopian tubes because that's where the egg and the sperm meet and they go out on a date, right? So if the fallopian tube is affected and if the egg and the sperm cannot meet because there's scar tissue or the tube is blocked, well, that causes infertility. The other issue can be the tube may be opened or open, but because of the scar tissue, it may be diverted somehow away from the pelvic area or pulled up somewhere where the tube is open clearly, but it's nowhere where it can pick up the egg. So oftentimes uh, we get this question and patients say, well, my tube is open, or actually I had an x-ray. There's an x-ray called HSG, hysterosalpingogram dye test, which is commonly used to check fallopian tubes. And uh, there is this sometimes misbelief that, oh, you know, the dye actually spilled through, and that means the tubes are perfectly normal. Well, the tube can be open, but it may not be functional. Those are two different things. They're closely related to one another, and oftentimes when the tube is open, it is functional, but if there's scar tissue around the tube, or if it's pulled up to one side or stuck somewhere, that is just simply not functional enough to pick up the egg that's been released into the pelvic area, or transport that sperm where it needs to go, well, that can cause uh, infertility. So in summary, endometriosis can cause tubal disease by causing inflammation and scar tissue. This is one established cause of endometriosis or impact of endometriosis, I should say, causing infertility. The second impact can be, once again, going back to the inflammation. When there's inflammation, there is swelling, there's redness, there's a lot of attraction of white cells, macrophages, that are designed to eat up and clear any foreign object, material, infection, bacteria, virus, uh, maybe the sperm, <laughs> because it doesn't belong there. So all of that inflammation and the reaction that our immune system gives and provides is really not ideal for the egg being released into an environment where it may be hostile and um, the sperm may not be capable of fertilizing that egg. When we look at patients with endometriosis, they oftentimes have some kind of liquid in their pelvis. And people wonder uh, what that liquid is all about. So there are studies, typical uh, like studies that have been established a number of years ago that looked at that liquid. And that liquid has been found to be toxic. They actually cultured embryos with that liquid and all of the embryos died. So basically, uh, the environment in which the egg is being released following ovulation, the fallopian tube, which is obviously in the pelvic area, can be kind of drenched in this liquid that is toxic, secondary to the inflammatory reaction that our body gives. And that toxic hostile environment is certainly not healthy for uh, an egg that is trying to be fertilized or sperm that is searching for the egg to fertilize it. And if and when an embryo forms, which is a fertilized egg, that embryo still is in the fallopian tube for a number of days. Just simply being exposed in that toxic environment, probably toxic fluids and some type of advanced and differentiated white cells that are trying to fight off that inflammation. 
So that environment just becomes so hostile that maybe that egg is not being fertilized or it's being immobilized or it's maybe collapsing. Maybe it's not even viable. And sperm is maybe losing its uh, motility, which has been looked at. Actually, can I just uh, stop you right there and ask, uh, you know, this is not necessarily our focus, but so with the embryo, would it affect it in the later stages of development as well? It can, yeah. So that's certainly the case. So an embryo may form, but it may not develop into the later stages because of that suboptimal environment that the embryo is trying to grow and survive in. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And that can start from the egg to the sperm. And when it's fertilized, it can continue on with the embryo. And uh, that certainly can happen. And uh, there are in vitro studies where they um, use this liquid, this toxic liquid and, uh, and other similar kind of liquids, and that has been detrimental to embryo development. So that's a really good point, Elif. Uh, thank you for that. And so last not least, and probably one of the most important impacts of endometriosis on fertility and how it causes infertility is its impact on the egg reserve. As we all know from our previous podcast, the egg reserve changes over time. So women are born with a finite number of eggs, Egg numbers go down at puberty or at the first period dramatically. From that point on, they always go down. So the numbers never go up or stay stable. Even if somebody's on birth control pills, which we have talked about a little bit earlier, that really does not preserve one's fertility. It may decrease the progression or the advancement of endometriosis, but it does not really preserve our egg reserve. No matter what happens, we just simply lose the eggs. So that's a dynamic process. When somebody has endometriosis or an inflammatory process in their pelvis, obviously the ovaries are in the pelvis. And ovaries are exposed in the sense that there's really no protective barrier or membrane around the ovaries. So the ovaries are not protected by this membrane called peritoneum, where all other organs are pretty much protected inside our abdomen by the peritoneum, which means that the ovaries are quite vulnerable to any toxic or inflammatory processes that are happening around them. So that toxic environment can actually affect the ovaries where we have our eggs, right? So, and if that inflammation is affecting any type of tissue, breaking down tissue, it can affect the cells and the tissue in the ovaries. And the eggs are inside our ovaries. And if the eggs are damaged, well, there's going to be accelerated loss. Well, there's always a loss in the egg numbers, right? So the quantity always goes down. But if there's further insult or inflammation, that's going to result in an accelerated loss of eggs where there's going to be more advanced reproductive aging. And that typically causes low egg reserve or decreased egg reserve, which is one of probably the most common diagnoses in our clinic. And that can be because of endometriosis or for a variety of other reasons, but endometriosis can certainly cause low egg reserve. And if it causes low egg reserve, then it causes infertility, which is one of the most common reasons for infertility these days. Well, I'm curious, you know, with all these complex ways that endometriosis can affect the reproductive system, how quickly are you able to pinpoint what's going on? And then what kind of a conversation do you have with your patients who may have this? If we suspect endometriosis because somebody has severe symptoms, it's always a good idea to immediately counsel that patient that they may have endometriosis and it may be a progressive disease. 
that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to start treatment immediately for it or have surgery or uh, or other type of treatments, but it's important to identify those symptoms that may be linked to endometriosis, which can certainly have consequences immediately or, uh, or down the line. In terms of identifying it and acting on it, certainly if somebody had surgery, then we would know if they have endometriosis or not, uh, then that would be clear and easy. Short of that, if we have high suspicion clinically, or if somebody has ovarian endometriosis or cysts involving and invading into the ovary, then just simply by definition, if somebody has endometriosis in their ovaries, they automatically have low egg reserve. And there are studies that look at hormone levels, number of eggs that are developing in the ovaries, and at time of diagnosis of these cysts or endometriosis-related cysts called endometriomas, all of those patients, almost almost all, had low egg reserve just at diagnosis. So whenever we see endometriosis in the ovaries, whether that's during surgery or or even before surgery, which is oftentimes the case, we automatically know that the egg reserve in that person is significantly lower than somebody else in her age group with or without infertility. So, and that goes into our counseling, and it should, because if somebody is at 35 and they have severe endometriosis, their egg reserve is significantly lower than somebody else at age 35. And that's important because that's going to affect their fertility dramatically. So it's really important to identify that individual who has more of an accelerated loss of her eggs, which affects significantly the quantity, of course, but more importantly, the quality. And that oftentimes adds to the anatomical issues that can cause infertility, that toxic, hostile environment caused by endometriosis and inflammation in the pelvic area. And on top of that, if they have low egg reserve, certainly that makes it a very, very complicated case. Um, so I think in practice, when we see a suspicious mass that looks like endometrioma or endometriosis in the ovaries, we automatically want to repeat that ultrasound in a reasonable amount of time to document that it's a persistent cyst. Because once again, if it disappears, and I think we covered this a little bit earlier, it's certainly not endometriosis because it it should not be a functional cyst. It should be a persistent cyst. And if that's the case, then immediately we counsel that patient about endometriosis, advanced stage, what its impact would be on their fertility, and certainly talk about treatment options, which for those patients, oftentimes today becomes medical and IVF, versus 20 years ago, it used to be almost always surgery which we're going to talk about in the next episode. But for those severe cases where the ovaries are involved, probably in addition to other variables that are affecting their fertility, immediate treatment is always recommended because in those cases, the disease is so advanced, which may significantly have affected that person's egg reserve and equality, that time is of essence. Because at that stage, there's really no reason to wait it will never get better and it's going to get worse in a very short amount of time. So that is very different than somebody who has a few symptoms or mild endometriosis where we can kind of somewhat take our time. 
when somebody has that advanced final stage genome issues, that's kind of terminal, really, and we must act on it. Let's try to wrap up on a hopeful note and look at the success in treating endometriosis, which we're going to examine further. But looking at the relationship with fertility, so would you say that patient wanting to get pregnant who has endometriosis can indeed have a child and have a successful outcome? That certainly depends on a number of variables. The milder forms are easier to treat because there's less inflammation. There are less issues such as possibly a reasonable egg reserve, which is the um, probably one of the most important variables. And uh, when the disease is early, even surgical treatment is easier, which can then be followed by it, literally a spontaneous pregnancy. Certainly, there are many variables such as reproductive age, egg reserve, coexisting conditions, medical problems, in addition to the status of the fallopian tubes and the uterus and overall anatomy. And also, let's not forget about the sperm because things may just be okay with minimal endometriosis, but if there's a sperm variable, and if we add endometriosis and inflammation in the pelvis, uh, well, we just talked about the environment being toxic to the sperm. And if the sperm is not as strong to start with, well, that's really not going to be beneficial, is it? So uh, once again, it all depends on each case, which we always say each case is different, although similar, but each case is unique. So the success rate really depends on those variables. In most cases, if there is good egg reserve, if the uterine environment and the fallopian tubes are within normal uh, range, and if we act early and we are aggressive in our treatment with IVF, uh, for example, the success rates are in the acceptable range. If we are late and we ignore the issue and we take our time, sometimes um, things don't look good at the end. I think the important thing is identifying the problem in a very short amount of time, explaining, educating the patients, giving them the options, obviously having them make the decision, but also prioritizing and um, explaining the importance of time. And that's, I think, the most important thing in, uh, in, in managing endometriosis and deciding on what type of treatment would be most appropriate. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dr. Bayrak, for sharing your expertise again on this topic. And now that we understand the condition and its effect on fertility, we will wrap our series in part three by looking at all the treatment options in detail and the chances of success. If you'd like more information about the treatment of endometriosis and any other fertility issues, please visit us at laivfclinic.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at laivfclinic. Thank you for listening. Understanding Your Fertility is created by LAIVF. Please note that this podcast is intended for a broad understanding of the topics presented. It is not a substitute for the medical advice or care of a physician-patient relationship. Podcast listeners should always consult with their healthcare provider 
regarding any medical condition that requires professional attention. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If the information on this podcast was useful to you, please feel free to share it.